So if you uh, have not been with us the last couple weeks, we are currently uh, doing a study through the book of James, and we've sort of titled the series, Faith is a Verb, meaning that uh, the focus of James, he's uh, all about action, and faith really, uh, to James, is an action word. Because it would take, how many guys does it take to bring me coffee? Three. And I love them all. Tip your barista. Tip my, hey, my barista gets tipped well enough. Um, For James, faith is not just a belief or a belief system that we adhere to or or sort of, uh, you know, think about or believe, whatever. It's, It's really something we do for him. It's something we do. There's action involved. Uh, last week we got into the first part of the book, but I also talked a little bit about reading contextually and not I- isolating verses. Uh, you know, you hear that little phrase, taking it out of context. But I would say this, and we, if you want to check out the podcast on that, there are a couple illustrations I gave. There are several New Testament verses that I think are used inappropriately fairly regularly and are taught that way. I jokingly uh, made a comment last week that I when I talked to you about reading contextually, I said, hey, this is as good as a seminary education, what I'm going to give you right here. And it probably wasn't. But I'm going to say this. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, by Fian Stewart. That almost is as good as a seminary education. Re- realistically, I would say if, if anybody, if, if your habit is just you, you have no hermeneutic, no principle, no, no interpretive principle when you read. You just read your Bible. God bless you. I'm not putting you down for that in any way. But if you were to get a hold of this book and actually not just read it, but work through it and apply the principles that Fee and Stewart lay out, I, I believe that you would, you would move light years ahead in your understanding of Scripture. Uh, it, it really is probably the, the single most helpful Bible study book uh, that I've ever used. And I have I teach a class here, a four-week class called How to Study the Bible. Uh, I've taught it over the years, and basically it's, it's a summary of that book. So that's my little commercial for today. Pick up Fee and Stewart. It'll help you, uh, I, I just think, deepen your understanding of, of really what the Word is really teaching us. So then we also talked a little bit about the focus in James, his focus on growth and maturity in Christ. I, I, I'm a process person. I grew up uh, in the vineyard and, and was you know, kind of taught all along that uh, our, our journey is a process. And James really adheres to that. He talks a lot about growing in our faith, moving forward in God. Uh, the attitude James says that we need to adhere, which I find to be very interesting because uh, I think Doug summarized my last week's message in about two minutes this morning, James says we need, when we encounter trials, and he doesn't say that we might, but he says when we do, to embrace them and to receive them with joy because ultimately those things will build perseverance in us, they will strengthen our faith, and they will develop maturity in our hearts and lives. I made the comment that Christianity is not static, that we really are either moving forward, we're growing in Christ, or we're moving backward. And I, I, I th- if, you th- if you think you're static, if you think you're holding pat, I would say that may not be a great place to be. The reality is, 
If you think that, you probably are moving backwards rather than forwards. Most of us, I, I think we sense and know growth in our life. And, and like Doug said, that's not always a welcome thing. It's not always easy. Sometimes growth is hard. Sometimes it, it's difficulties in life that cause us to grow, but we can still praise God and say, yeah, amen, thank you, Jesus, because I'm growing, I'm moving forward with you. Last thing that we mentioned last week is that while those trials and challenges, and he also talked about temptations, while uh, God does use those to bring growth about in our life, he does not cause them. God is not the source of difficulties in our life. James, James makes it very clear that the source of those things is other than that. They come from a variety of sources, really, out of our own heart, uh, out of the culture that we live in, sometimes directly from the enemy. Um, but while God will use those, he doesn't cause them. He tells us every good and perfect gift, good things come from God, uh, not bad things. God will take those things that we encounter in life, even if they are bad, and help us grow. So brief summary last week. Uh, today, uh, last half of chapter 1, there are three paragraphs. So I'm going to try to look at, they're all very short, look at each one of those in turn. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into uh, James beginning at 119. Father, thanks so much again for your word. And grant us the grace today to really receive what you have for us, uh, to open our hearts, uh, to grow in you, uh, to not just hear the word, but to be doers of the word, to follow uh, the example and the exhortation of James, to really uh, embrace the word and put it into practice in our own lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, James, uh, beginning at verse 119, I'll just read this first couple verses here. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I, I, uh, I love his little opening there. Take note of this. Uh, listen up, I think, is, would be the vernacular there. If, if we were saying that, they would go, hey, pay attention. Listen up. Uh, you know, Jesus says a lot of times, you notice, he said, truly I tell you, uh, or sometimes he says, very truly I tell you, not just kind of truly, but very truly. And he's really saying the same thing. Pay attention. This is important. Uh, James says, pay attention, take note. And then he, he launches into really one of the themes that runs throughout this book, uh, the idea that our tongue, the words that we speak, can get us into trouble. Uh, you know, we probably don't hear that enough. It's interesting to me, it, it, you know, in the church we tend to have certain categories of sin that we look at and we talk about a lot. And, and the truth is sometimes those categories are things that probably have an effect on very few people um, and certainly not on me, whereas um, the things that we say, can we be honest, uh, that is something that impacts all of us. That's something I think that, uh, look, look, let's just show of hands, <laughs> not really, but how, how many of us have ever found ourselves in a situation where something we said really caused some problems for us and for others? How many of you ever had that thing happen where 
you say something, then you regret saying it, you wish you hadn't said it, you said something hurtful, something mean, something out of order, uh, and, and you wish you could take it back, but the reality is you just can't, can you? I mean, I, it's, I've done that where it, it's still coming out of my mouth, you know what I mean? It's a, the words are about right here, and I, oh, and I want to get them back so bad, but it's just too late. Once you speak those things, the, the reality is this, our, our tongues, it's, it's the things that we say, I think, cause so much grief and strife and difficulty in the, in the context of uh, human relationships in general, but certainly in, in, the, in, the, in the church. We, we say things that we shouldn't say so often. And James is here saying, take note, pay attention. We should be slow to speak, not quick to speak. Think about what you're going to say before you say it and, and uh, you know, temper your words. Uh, he says, conversely, be quick to listen. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And I, again, I feel like in our culture today, listening is a lost art. I just really find it uh, to be something that very few people, and to me, and we've talked about this before, listening, it, it takes effort. It really requires uh, some effort on our part to really listen to someone else and hear what they have to say. Um, I, I really believe it's, it's one of the most profound acts of love we can give to another person, to actually focus our attention and really hear them and really listen to them. And it's so rarely do we do that. We find ourselves, we want to be quick to speak. I, I mean, look, how many times are you not hearing what someone's saying because you're thinking about what you're going to say next? rather than hearing what they're going to say. And that's the whole dynamic, I think, that's very common to human nature. But James is saying, no, reverse that. Turn that around. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Pay more attention to what others are saying and less about yourself. When we do that, and I think this also is is fairly common and true, when we're quick to speak, oftentimes our words will uh, have some anger behind them. They'll be accompanied by anger, which James uh, tells us very clearly, that doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires for our lives. That's not a legalistic statement. That's not like a, a self-righteous or a pious, holier-than-thou statement. He's, the righteousness that God really wants in our lives is, is not going to happen uh, when we exhibit anger to others. So he's saying, really, uh, and this is kind of what James has told us so far in the chapter, um, be patient, pray, listen, and be slow to speak. And that, again, very, very practical wisdom. It's a very, very practical book. This is maybe not, you know, uh, the you know, s- deep things of the Spirit, but in a sense, they really are the deep things of the Spirit to live it out and be practical in that way. Um, he, he tells us, he identifies a couple things that hinder that process, that get in the way of us being patient and listening and really moving forward in righteousness with God. He talks about moral filth and evil, and he tells us to get rid of them. Get rid of moral filth and evil. I, I don't know exactly uh, how, what James meant when he said those things. This is how I interpret that. I believe it's correct. Moral filth being more of an internal thing. It's kind of what comes out of me. It's the stuff that's in me. Uh, we, I, we could say sin. Get rid of the sin in your life, uh, lack of concern about others, greed, self-centeredness, 
selfish choices. Anything that I choose to enter into or involve myself in uh, that, that's, that, that corrupts me and turns me away from God, that's how I would categorize moral, sin, or moral filth. Evil, on the other hand, I would categorize as being external. Uh, that's the reality that there are also outside forces at play. We really do have an enemy. There really is a thing called spiritual warfare taking place all the time, and that enemy really is trying to draw us towards that moral filth. He wants us to respond in that way, so he's doing everything he can do to move us in that direction. So we have internal and external influences that are hindering our process of maturity and growth in Christ. James says flat out, just get rid of that. I love his approach. No beating around the bush. You know, you know don't, it's, oh, it's okay. We just do, you know. No, get rid of that stuff. Just put it out of your life. Get rid of it. Take it off. Make it go away. Um, let go of it. Second paragraph here. Um, do not merely listen to the word. So deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks in his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whatever, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Uh, this is one of the major themes of James' letter. Uh, the reality that uh, we do not want to be just hearers of the word or listeners of the word, but we want to do it. There's a, there's a perspective that is... I think fairly prevalent in evangelical Christianity today. That reading the Word, knowing the Word, studying the Word is sufficient for growth in Christ. That that's how we grow. And I would say that's an errant notion. That the only, only when we actualize the Word, only when we put it into practice, only when we do what it says, does it have any real impact on our lives or the lives of others around us or the world that we live in? Now, studying the Word is important. I just recommended a book to you about how to study the Word. But it's important so that we know what to do. We don't study as an end in itself. Studying the Word is not the end game. That's how we get to the end game. We study so that we know what to do. This is a, this is a key component uh, for those of you that might be uh, fairly new to the vineyard. This is a key component in vineyard philosophy of ministry. Our founder, John Wimber, used to say things all the time like, we don't eat the menu. And what he meant is when you go out to eat, you go to a restaurant, you look at the menu, that gives you the options that are available, that tells you what's next, but that's not, that's not the end of it all. So he was saying, hey, we, we read the Word, that's not the final deal. We, we want to read the Word so that we know what to do. Um, he, he actually uh, would at times say something uh, a little different than maybe you have heard before. The meat is in the street. And that was John's response. There's a... Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews that talks about when you're immature, when your baby's in Christ, you have the milk of the word. I gave you the milk of the word, he says. But then when you became more mature, you're ready for the meat. I like, uh, I think the uh, King James says heavy meat. I don't know what heavy meat is, but that, it sounds heavy. Um, so it's common, and I, I've heard this, I've had people ask me this, and John had had people ask him, and that was where this came from. When are we going to get into the meat of the word? And I always find that funny because what does that mean? What, exa- what are you saying? 
Uh, but, but John would say, well, the meat is in the street. The meat of the word uh, is when we walk it out. The meat, the depth, the, 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 the getting really deep into the word is when we, we activate it, when we live it out. That's where the meat is. Uh, so I would just say a mature expression of faith is the outworking of God's word in our lives. Anything less than that, frankly, is a little bit self-serving. My, my experience has been, again, that oftentimes those that focus more on teaching or, or just reading or studying or knowing pride themselves on how well they know it rather than any ability at all to, to live it out. James can, is sometimes criticized. The book of James, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I always, people criticize the Bible. I go, how you, really? Okay. Uh, sure, go ahead. It's not on you. Uh, but James is criticized fairly often for, uh, people say he's preaching, you know, uh, uh, salvation by works. He's preaching a doctrine of works. I would say nothing could be further from the truth. I believe James really understands how this works. If you ask me, this is what he's told us so far. There's bad stuff in the world around us. Get rid of that. There's moral filth and evil. You don't want those things. Get rid of them so that God's word can really take root in your life. Clear some space out so God's word will take root. He makes it very clear that will save you. But then uh, the next step is in maturity. Do, do what it says. Do what it says. Um, he gives us this illustration, which is you know this idea of looking in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you look like. Some, some of us probably want to do that. Um, but he says... That, that's, you know, the, the illustration is, no, look intently, focus. We really do need to focus in, look intently at the Word of God, know what it says, understand it, so, so that we can then activate it in our lives. He says, you'll be blessed if you do that. You will. You'll be blessed if, if you do that. Our, um, our mission statement here at Portland Vineyard is, I think, both very simple and very reflective of that reality. We say, blessed to be a blessing. We understand the nature of God's blessing in our lives. We understand that really every good and perfect gift does come from Him. That He is the source of everything we have. We give thanks to God for every breath we take, everything that we happens, all that we do, our whole life, we understand comes from Him. He's the source. We really, truly, eternally are blessed by God, but that is not an end in itself either. We're blessed by God with a purpose the purpose of God's blessing in my life is that I can be given away. It's to be a blessing. I'm blessed to be a blessing. Another little Wimberism. You know, John would say we give to get to give to get to give to get to give. And, and the idea behind that, and he would sometimes use that in the context of talking about money, but it could also be blessing or time or uh, love or grace or forgiveness, anything like that. when we receive those things from God, we give them away, and then that that allows God then to give more back to us. And he would say this, and it's so true, we just simply cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. The more you give, the the more God has opportunity to give back to you. You cannot outgive God. People sometimes are so afraid. You know, and and look, we get this, I, I think, financially with money, afraid to give. But sometimes we're afraid to give those other things. We're afraid to love. If I love, I might get hurt. Uh, 
you know, I don't, if, I, if, I, if I allow myself to be vulnerable and open up to other people, uh, I, I might get hurt. We're afraid of that. God says, no, I want you to open up. I want you to be vulnerable. I want you to give your love out because then that will allow me to pour more love back into you. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, a kingdom principle that we need to really learn to get a hold of and, and work in every aspect of our lives to, to give everything that God's given away. Never think that in any way he's going to run out. We're not going to have enough if we do. The more we give, the more God will give to us. Another one of my heroes of the faith said it this way. The church is only the church when it exists for others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Look, if we're not giving it away, can I say we're really not the church? You know, you can, it's a, you're a club, you're a fraternity, you're the Royal Order of Water Buffaloes, uh, or you're a box of puppies. Um, I know, here's the thing, box of puppies, right? They're in the box, and they're licking each other, just licking each other. And they're so happy to be together, they're just so happy, and they're so cute and cuddly, but that's not the church. And sometimes, oh, that's what we want the church to be like. We'd like to be in that little box where it's nice and warm and cuddly, and we could just lick each other and be nice to one another. I'll be nice to you, you be nice to me, and then everything will be okay, but I don't want to go outside of the box. But I'm telling you, that's not the church. It's cute, but it's not the church. God called us to get outside of the box. Yeah, I know, there's a risk. We went to the park a couple weeks ago. It was kind of fun. Just handing out pop or Coke or water or something. It was hundred and some degrees out. That was not fun. Uh, but we just had great opportunities just to get out of the box. You know, I had a great conversation with a guy and just had an opportunity to pray and bless him. And if I didn't get out of the box, I couldn't do that. You got to get out of the box or we're not really the church. Final paragraph in chapter one. Uh, I love James, man. He doesn't slow down. He's bam, 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 bam. Just going to, he pounds it. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein in their tongues deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless. I didn't say it. He did. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Three things, James says, uh, make for religion that God accepts as pure and right. Uh, keep a tight rein on our tongues. We talked about that already a little bit today, and we will again, because as I said, our speech and what we say is a very important theme for James. Second thing is that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, and we also talked about that a little bit. The third thing he mentions here is to care for orphans and widows in their distress, in, in essence, Get out of the box. Get out of the box. Orphans and widows to me here are, uh, and I believe this is accurate, emblematic of anyone who is vulnerable, anyone who is weak, anyone who is susceptible to exploitation in their lives. Um, And that is a theme that not only runs throughout the book of James, it really runs throughout the entire scripture. Uh, Walking away from, you know, looking at last week, talking about, uh, the meta-narrative, the big picture of the Bible, you walk away from the Bible, there's a few things you come away with. One of the things I come away with is God's heart is for the poor. 
God's heart is for the weak. God's heart is for the vulnerable and those that are susceptible to exploitation. There are over 2,000 verses in Scripture dealing with poverty and injustice and God's response to injustice. Uh, In the Old Testament, only the theme of idolatry is more prominent than the theme of God's uh, treatment of injustice. In the New Testament, one of every 16 verses deals with poverty and the use of money and, and, and God's response to justice. In the Gospels, Jesus talks more about it than anybody else. In the Gospels, it's one in 10 verses. Um, Luke really likes this topic. He focuses on Jesus' words uh, about poverty and injustice, one out of every seven verses. We simply cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus and ignore the vulnerable members of our society. Once again, uh, I, ju- I just I cannot justify that. I cannot justify the idea that I can call myself a follower of Christ and have everything nice and together in my own life and yet ignore uh, the plight of those around me that are in need. I, I, I cannot come away from understanding and reading Scripture with that conclusion at all. Um, I want to bring some definition to this a little bit, if I can. I'm going to anyway. <laughs> the, uh, the poor in the Old Testament are defined in three ways, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. Uh, in Deuteronomy it says this, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Um, God is reminding his people of where they came from and what he did for them and encouraging them to do the same now for others. A little bit later, also in Deuteronomy, it says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Again, remember where you came from. That's why I command you to do this. I did this for you. Now I want you to do this for me. Um, That's that's the principle of justice in the Bible. I bring this up. uh, I I think it's an important issue for us in the church uh, in the United States today. the alien or the foreigner here is really a basically a refugee. It's a person who has fled their homeland uh, because of unlivable circumstances, whether that's a war or famine or some sort of natural disaster or an oppressive government, whatever the case might be. It's a desperate person who has found themselves in a situation where... It's unlivable, so they've fled to go elsewhere uh, just for, you know, to, to save themselves, to, to get away from uh, what's happening. I would say, think about that for a moment. It's never easy to walk away from your home. It's never easy to make that decision. It's never easy to leave behind your family, your friends, your culture, everything, your job, that you know as normal, you're abandoning all of that, but sometimes the circumstances of life bring us to a place where that is our only option. We have no other choice but to flee. So, speaking as a pastor this morning, I want to say, I think sometimes, 
Some of us, our, our, our thinking is shaped more by politics than it is by the Bible. Okay, now maybe I have your attention. Um, it's fairly popular right now to be anti-immigration. And it's a huge issue facing our country today. I get that. And uh, some people are speaking up fairly uh, boisterously and loudly about this particular issue because we have a presidential election coming up in a short time. So this is this week. This was this week in the news. Outspoken commentator and writer Ann Coulter joined Fox News' Sean Hannity to deliver to the viewing audience exactly what she thinks about Donald Trump's stance on immigration. She didn't mince words. My only quibble with Trump is that, number one, it's legal immigrants, too, and number two, there are no good ones, Coulter said on Hannity Monday. So this last Monday, she went on air and said, one, all immigrants are bad. None of them should be here, whether they're legal or otherwise. She call, Coulter called Trump's hardline stance on immigration fantastic, but made the argument that he doesn't quite go far enough. So let me just say this to you. That may be a conservative um, value. Sadly, in my mind, it may be an American value, but, but, but it's not a biblical value. That's not a biblical value. There's no way you can come to that conclusion by reading Scripture. Absolutely no way. So my point is simply this, that when the church aligns themselves blindly with the conservative right, they're being informed more by politics than the Bible. David Nystrom, who wrote a fantastic commentary on the book of James, it's the NIV application commentary series, he says, while many Christians claim that the poor alone are responsible for their condition, we must face the fact that this is a decidedly American value. Italics are his, not mine. It does not reflect the values of the Bible. Here is a case where the lure of the world is at work. I think, by and large, the evangelical church is blind to that. James plainly teaches that we are to care for the poor. Some might claim that he intended such generosity only for others within the Christian community, but the teaching of the Old Testament concerning concerning care for the alien and of Jesus concerning the neighbor weighs heavily to the other side. We are to be ambassadors of Christ. We, We are to represent him in this world. We are to remember where we came from and extend ourselves on behalf of the weak, the poor, the uh, marginalized, uh, and the displaced in this world. And there is no way we can consider ourselves followers of Christ if we refuse to do that. Proverbs teaches us, this is a, I think just only just ponder this for a moment, okay? Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Who owes God anything? No one. God is not indebted to any man, and yet God says this, I will, I will indebt myself to you. I will indebt myself to you if you will do this one thing for me. If, if you will be kind to the poor. Proverbs also tells us, uh, I didn't print the verse out, but that lack of care for the poor is one. There's only five or six things, I think, listed in all of Scripture that hinder our prayer life, that will actually block our prayers, and that is one of them. So, look, I just want to say this. Oh, last thing before we get on. Jesus also says the same thing. I tell you whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. And again, Jesus is not talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about brothers and sisters in humanity. And it's very clear. You re- when you read the Gospels, it's very clear. 
mean, how many times has he used Samaritan as an example? It's very clear. He's not talking about only those within the faith. He's talking about those within human life. Um, these things have not gone away in our society today. These are 21st century problems. If anything, I would say this. The vulnerable are more vulnerable today than they've ever been. The vulnerable are more vulnerable today than ever. The greed and exploitation of human beings today is unbelievable in my mind. Unbelievable in my mind. When someone has to make a decision, am I going to buy the medicine I need to stay alive or buy food, something is wrong with our, with our culture. When that, that's the decision they have to make. The, 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 the problems of homelessness on our streets. The problem, look, I don't, I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. If you can't afford medical care, that's an issue. That's an issue. If, you, if you're hungry, that's an issue that we cannot turn a blind eye to. If, if you, the, the, I mean, we won't even talk about the unborn today, but you talk about exploitation of the vulnerable. It's unbelievable what happens in the hearts of greedy people in our culture today. Look, Nystrom said it's quick, it's easy, and I hear this more than I would like, to point the finger and identify, well, those people are in the condition they're in because they're lazy. They're, they're in the condition they're in because they made bad choices. They're in the condition they're in because they're just alcoholics and addicts. But I say again, I think when you say that, you're being informed more by politics than by the Bible. Another example, look, I'm just, my friend Tri Robinson, about, and I've got to give you the context, about 10 years ago, he started speaking out on environmental concern as a Christian. He believed as Christians we have a biblical mandate to care for the world. Now, also about that exact same time, Al Gore produced a movie called An Inconvenient Truth. So immediately, environmental care became a liberal cause. So what happened is when Tri spoke out as a Christian with a biblical mandate, the liberals embraced him. He got invited to speak at the U.S. Senate. He wrote articles for the Huffington Post, and Christians all said he's gone off the deep end. The church said he's lost his mind. He's a tree hugger. Try said, I'm not a liberal. I'm a Christian. I'm just being biblical. I would say this. Look, I believe, by and large, poverty... Homelessness, hunger, immigration, those things are caused by a complex string of events that it's just, it's just not easy to point a finger and say, this is the cause of that problem. It's way too complex. It's way too complex. The, the combination of forces beyond our control, natural disasters. When I walk around Managua and I see entire sections of the city, huge sections of the capital city that was destroyed by an earthquake 25 years ago and have never been rebuilt, it breaks my heart. You know, when I think about what's happening in, the, in Nepal right now because things beyond our control, those people they have no choice. I was in an earthquake. But the lack of education, the lack of resources, oppressive governments, all of those things work together. And honestly, I'll say this, quite frankly, I think... Again, greed and a willingness on the part of some to exploit those who are vulnerable. And, and honestly, uh, you, you know, uh, 
on the part of others just to not give a damn. I don't I want to turn my blind eye. If, if, I, if, I don't, if, if I don't see it, I don't have to do anything about it. I was in a conference once. A gal named Jackie Pullinger was speaking. She's a uh, British gal who at the age of 17 wanted to go work in the walled city in China, which is a very, very, very rough and bad area with a lot of drug addicts, heroin addicts. And no mission agency would accept her because she didn't have the proper 20 training. So she got on a boat, went to China, and went to work. And she l- worked there for the rest of her life. And so 35 years later, she's 50 years old, I heard her speaking at this conference. And I will never forget Jackie Puller just saying, if you see them, they're your responsibility. If you see them, they're your responsibility. You cannot turn a blind eye to those in you. I mean, it's just powerful. Look, I'm going to say this. You can write me an email later. Even if, even if poverty is a result of laziness, poor choices, or addiction, I don't see it anywhere in Scripture where it's my job to judge that. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it's my job to criticize that. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it's my job to determine who's worthy of God's help and who's not. I believe it's my job to be like Jesus and to help those in need regardless of how they got there because that's what Jesus did for me. How many of you came to Christ and had Jesus say, you know what, you kind of screwed your own life up, so I really can't help you today? It's not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. God never did that. It's not our job to criticize. It's not our job to judge. It's our job to, in the name of Jesus, do what we can do to bring relief and help and comfort to those in need, regardless of how they got to where they are today. One last story and we'll close. I'm going to... Uh, this is another great... recommend another book today. A guy named Tony Hall was U.S. Uh, House of Representatives for a number of years. He also was a U.S. ambassador. Wrote, Changing the Face of Hunger, One Man's Story of How Liberals, Conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, and People of Faith are Joining Forces to Help the Hungry, the Poor, and the Oppressed. He talks about in the 1970s being on a United States task force to... Uh, look at the issues of hunger in our country. And so they wanted to see how, how, it, how does this work? Who's doing this? So he, he went to Calcutta and visited Mother Teresa. So he's there with a group of people. They're in Mother Teresa's uh, ministry, and they're, they're viewing it, and they're touring it with her. They're walking around with Mother Teresa. This is the conversation. Someone asked Mother Teresa, don't you think what you do is kind of a drop in the bucket? And she answered, no, it's a drop in the ocean. But if I don't do it, it would be one less drop. And then Hall says, the problem of the world is so vast, how can you possibly hope to solve them? And Mother Teresa answers, you do the thing that's in front of you. Let's stand.